In this case, there's no evidence of race coming in at all. What it is an instance of is clearly incompetent officers that never should have been on the force and possibly totally incompetent training. There's two possibilities. Today, I sit down with Manhattan Institute fellow Heather McDonald, author of The War on Cops and The Diversity Delusion. Policing may enter a death spiral if racism remains the predominant explanation for the Tyree Nichols case. It's going to drive more people out of the profession, and it's going to enter a vicious cycle. Her upcoming book is titled, When Race Trumps Merit. You can either have meritocracy or you can have diversity. You can't have both. This is American Thought Leaders, and I'm Yanya Kellick. Donald, such a pleasure to have you back on American Thought Leaders. Thank you so much, Jan. It's always a pleasure talking with you. So I want to look at this whole Tyree Nichols attack and, you know, I don't know if we can call it a murder at this point, but it certainly looked like that based on the video footage that I found. I like to wait a little bit to have the kind of dust settle and we can have a bit of perspective on what happened and you always offer, I think, a very thoughtful perspective. So maybe to start, if you could just tell us Based on what you've seen and what you know, what happened there? Well, there's many different ways of answering that question. There's the brute facts, and then there's the underlying explanation of what happened. How did this happen? Uh, what happened, we still don't really know why he was pulled over. Uh, the officers initially said he was driving in the wrong direction. Uh, there'd been a whole history of reckless driving in Memphis, as there has been in many cities after George Floyd riots. The police have backed off of car stops and driving, especially in inner city neighborhoods, is completely maniac. People have, the, the rates of death by uh, traffic crashes is way up in inner city areas. So reckless driving was one of the concerns that the police chief and, and Memphis residents had. And in response to reckless driving, she created one of these specialized units the acronym is SCORPION, that was supposed to go after reckless drivers and be on the lookout for violent crime. So uh, two officers in the SCORPION unit pulled over Mr. Nichols. Uh, again, we don't know why. They say reckless driving. The, the authorities in Memphis say we have not been able to confirm that. Uh, when the videos kick in, these officers are already basically out of control. They are giving Mr. Nichols contradictory demands, show your hands, you know, keep your hands down, uh, get out of the car, stay in the car. They drag him out of the car. The officer's tactics for arresting a suspect are incompetent. They have nothing to do with the proper procedure for making a car stop, for subduing suspects. In car stops, when you have multiple officers, one officer is supposed to take the lead and everybody else follows him. Instead, you have these contradictory commands. Nobody's the superior, nobody's the subordinate in the stop. They drag him out, uh, and, and the, the violence is already beginning. At some point, Mr. Nichols escapes, even though they've tried to tase him at that point, and starts running. Now, my usual position on instances of officer use of deadly force or, or, you know, highly uh, physical force is you can basically prevent all such horrible incidents by complying with an officer. Just do not resist arrest. You know, do what he tells you to do. Don't run. Don't flee in your car. 
take it up with your lawyer afterwards. In this case, I don't blame Mr. Nichols for running uh, because these officers were behaving like maniacs. I would have been scared out of my life as well. So he runs, the officers are so out of shape, they lose track of him. They, another group catches up with him and, and one from the original group do. And at that point in the second stop, it's even worse. Uh, one officer in particular, Officer Martin, seems to be the most sadistic. He's kicking him in the head when he's down. Uh, and, and the other thing that is heartbreaking about this, officers are, should be trained these days in de-escalation. And this is the idea that we want them to have some psychological tools to be able to defuse a situation. If, because usually it's the suspect who is escalating things by increasing levels of resistance, and officers should be able to talk him down. It's also known as verbal jujitsu, to be able to kind of uh, psychologically counter the escalating situation. In this case, in both stops, it was Mr. Nichols who was trying to de-escalate and saying, you know, man, I'm, I'm on the ground. Here's my hands. You know, what do you want me to do? And they were the ones that kept up these, this rain of blows. Uh, no supervisor showed up until the very, very end. Again, that is something that is contrary to uh, standard procedure, what they should be learning in the academy. I, as soon as one of the officers had used his taser, that should have resulted in a call to the supervisor to show up. Um, and the officers at various points appear to have taken off their m body cameras or turned them off. That's also a violation. Um, so this incident has been falsely portrayed by President Joe Biden, by the mainstream media, as an instance of white supremacy. Now, obviously, there's many ironies there because Yes, Nichols was black, but all five of the main officers who now have been indicted for murder were also black. Um, and that is a poisonous narrative, one that does not accord with the facts. What it is an instance of is clearly incompetent officers that never should have been on the force and possibly totally incompetent training. There's two possibilities. Either the training provided by the Memphis Police Department is grotesquely inadequate and is failing to convey to officers practice, you know, they're not practicing car stops, they're not practicing tactics, or the training is sufficient and these officers were simply cognitively and psychologically incapable of absorbing it. I mean, you know, of course, you've written the book, uh, The War on Cops, mm -hmm. um, and, you know, one of the things that's often cops are charged at with in this war of cops just sort of rhetorically is being brutal and you know basically out of control and this right. situation seems to validate that somehow absolutely Jan. that's the f the worry is that it is a legitimate question to ask which is whether this body camera video and also there was a video camera from a pole a street light camera whether it's given us a window into day-to-day -day policing. Now, I happen to think not. Uh, one th another thing that supervisors in well-managed departments do is they're supposed to periodically review random 
snippets of officers' body camera tape. And if there was systemic brutality going on, that should have been caught. Um, and I, do, I don't think that this is representative. The fact of the matter is, is policing is, is so much more professional today, especially in departments like New York City. Whether Memphis is, is a backwater, I don't know. Um, but I have to think that if this was truly systemic, there would have been charges about this before. But it is a valid question. And uh, in this case as well, I usually feel like the Civil Rights Division of the Justice Department is too quick on the trigger. You know, it jumps into departments, wants to put them under these federal consent decrees, investigating them. In this case, while I don't think this is a civil rights issue, I, I don't mind the Justice Department going in and taking an external look at the Memphis Police Department and trying to figure out, was this predictable? Uh, is it a failure of supervision? Is it a failure of training? Or is it a failure totally of recruitment standards? Well, and you know, you started to talk about this a little bit earlier. One of the charges which is being made, which is frankly confusing to many people, is this that it's actually an example of white supremacy. And, and you've written that there was actually this kind of pause in trying to understand almost how this w would be the necessary narrative, yeah. if, I, if I'm reading you correctly. Well, yeah. it's, it's uh, a pause in, gee, we have to keep the white supremacy narrative going, so what do we do? We've got the black officers. I know we'll now redefine racism. Racism now has nothing to do with the perpetrator and everything to do with the victim. So Van Jones, a CNN commentator, was first out of the gate with an, an essay saying, you know, be not abashed, you Black Lives Matter activists. This is still racism. It still shows that police is, policing is fundamentally racist because now anything bad that happens to a black victim is by definition racist. Now, I have to say, it is, there is a shred of a plausible argument in their idea that black officers can be racist too. You know, their argument is, is that the whole culture of policing is such that any officer of any color is going to absorb a set of attitudes towards black suspects. So just because you're black doesn't mean you can't be a white supremacist. I, I think it's a stretch, but it's not completely crazy. Um, but in this case, there's no evidence of any of race coming in at all. And I'm also, on the other hand, Jan, I'm reluctant to too facilely say, well, of course it can't be racism because they were black, because that presumes that the charge that, well, it must be racism because they're white is any more legitimate. And I'm never going to make that argument either. I want some, some sort of affirmative evidence in either case that racism played a role. But in any case, the racism thing immediately was the reestablishes the dominant narrative. You had President Biden before the tapes coming out saying this just shows us once again about the systemic inequities in the criminal justice system, in other words, towards blacks. After the tapes went out, he revived a favorite trope of his own that he picked up from President Barack Obama, which is that every time a black child goes out into the streets, his parents are correct to fear that he might be abused or killed by a cop something that is completely belied by the data. It is just not the case. Yes, blacks have 
much more reason to fear that they're going to get shot when they go outside. And the reason is not because of white cops or cops or white people. It's because of black criminals. The blacks between the ages of 10 and 24 die of gun homicide at 25 times the rate of whites between the ages of 10 and 24. They're not being killed by cops. They're not being killed by, by whites. They're being killed by other blacks. That's the reality that no one wants to talk about. It's the reality that explains policing today and the fact that police are more heavily, intensively de deployed in black neighborhoods because that's where the victims are. And nobody wants to talk about that. We've been blaming the messenger for the past 50 years saying, oh, well, uh, you know, police are in, in black neighborhoods more. It must be because they're racist. No, the reason that they're in black neighborhoods is because that's where the crime is happening. We blame the messenger rather than looking at the underlying problem. Two things, okay? Um, the first one is I want to ask you about why is this argument not completely crazy? You said that earlier. I think I, I really want to hear that. Um, but the second thing is, you know, you could also make the case that precisely this reality that you described of this, you know, incredibly high levels of crime in inner city, predominantly black communities is a consequence of some sort of racism. So the, the two right. things. Okay, so the first is maybe the first one. Why is it not completely crazy? Yeah, to so say that's that this taking is like opposite right. uh, 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 arguing for, the, you know, good for you. Um, because let's just imagine a police department, and again, this is not resembling any police department I know, but we can imagine one that is reinforcing the idea somehow, or, or maybe even, you know, this is one of the, the, the favorite stories of the anti police activists. Forget what you learned on the, in the academy, kid. You know, now I'm going to teach you the ropes. So you're driving around with a white, bigoted uh, police trainer sergeant. And he's just telling you, you know, all these blacks are, are violent. They're all criminals. The only way you can get them to obey is by roughing them up. Uh, and uh, everybody in this community is a so-called douchebag, which is one of the police terms. Um, and the only thing they understand is force. Again, this is a grotesque caricature, and I'm not saying that there's police violence, but one could imagine a police culture that is completely uh, unsympathetic to blacks and has no sense of their humanity, and that black officers, this is what their narrative is, is that black officers, in order to fit in to the culture, uh, have to absorb those, those attitudes. And so they identify with their white peers and, and therefore see any black suspect as beneath humanity. Or possibly they want to show that they're part of the guys. You know? Again, I'm not saying that's the case, but it, it's, not, it's not completely crazy. Um, and as far as why racism doesn't explain crime in black communities, well, in one sense, I don't care what the re explanation is. That's a separate discussion. The fact of the matter is right now, the police are not going to decide to police or not based on whether it's based on the crime is based on racism. They have to be there to fulfill their duty and obligation to protect lives. And the reason they're in black neighborhoods is to save black lives. There is no government agency, and I would say not many private agencies, certainly not the civil rights and the Black Lives Matter activists that care more about an, 
black lives than the police. The only people who care are the police. You know, when Al Sharpton and Benjamin Crump, this civil rights attorney who's now representing the Tyree Nichols family, he shows up at every police shooting of a black man to get his clients. Um, they went to Minneapolis at the one-year anniversary of the George Floyd death to commemorate George Floyd, who is sadly a civil, our current version of civil rights heroes. You know, he, this man was a criminal. He had just committed a crime. He had a long history of crime. He's not somebody for young people to venerate, but today our civil rights heroes are almost exclusively criminals who've been shot by cops, and that's a sad statement about our current state of the civil rights movement. But in any case, so there's, there's Sharpton and Crump showing up at Minneapolis. At that moment in North Minneapolis in a hospital were two children, two black children, a nine-year-old uh, girl and a 10-year-old boy who had both been recently shot in the head in drive-by shootings by black criminals. Uh, the boy's skull had to be removed. He's going to be paralyzed for life. The nine-year-old's girl shot in the head. She died several days later. And a few days after that, another black child was shot uh, fatally. As to whether the broader question, does racism cause crime? No, it doesn't. I don't believe so. I, you know, there's not racism that makes these kids go out and start spraying bullets recklessly across sidewalks because they're hoping to, to take out their gang enemies and instead are shooting young children in their parents' cars or on their front porches or coming out of stores. That's not racism. It's a total failure of self-control and respect for life. It's also definitely not poverty. The left's favorite explanation for the post-George Floyd crime surge that we had, which was 29% increase in homicides over one year, which is unprecedented in American history, is that it was the pandemic and everybody was suffering and, oh, they couldn't put bread on the table. Again, it's not the lack to put bread on the table that causes you to start shooting your gang enemies. It is a civilizational breakdown these kids all have smartphones, you know, $1,000 smartphones. Social media is the police's best friend. They're all throwing their, their gang videos on, on Instagram with their, that they took with their smartphones. And so they're throwing their gang signals. They're showing their cash and their guns. And this helps the police a lot. But it's neither poverty nor is it racism. The point is that it's almost become a kind of cultural phenomenon. I guess that's what you're saying. It's cultural breakdown and cultural phenomenon, absolutely. The, the retaliatory shootings are just standard. And my God, you know, we've, we turn our eyes away from the inner city pathologies. Listen to rap music. You know, we've heard this. Rap music has been telling us about this culture for the last 30 to 40 years. The misogyny, the anti-Semitism, the violence, the kill cop, uh, anti-snitching ethic. It's a culture that celebrates crime and violence, but America turns its eyes away because it's so disturbing a reality, and instead you have these mainstream institutions blaming themselves for phantom racism. You know, uh, one argument that has been growing in my mind um, over time is that it's this, that this in itself is a kind of weird patronizing racism where the, you know, basically white, 
elite societies tells itself, well, you know, you're 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 not quite up to right. taking control of your life, so we'll we'll let you do. I, I find that really troubling. Yeah. And, you know, we have heard this from George W. Bush, the soft bigotry of low expectations. We're going to tear down standards, and that is what my next book is about, about disparate impact and when race trumps merit. We tear down any standard that has a disparate impact on blacks rather than saying, how about you meet the standards? So we're getting rid of LSATs. We're getting rid of, you know, the, the medical school admissions tests. We're getting rid of gifted and talented programs. We're getting rid of... Uh, in the criminal law, we're getting rid of behavioral standards because if you enforce the law, it will have a disparate impact on blacks. That's why we have more blacks in prison than is represented by their population ratios. And we're not saying, how about you do what other discriminated against groups did, like Jews or Asians, which is not just meet the standards, but beat them and whoop everybody else's ass. And it doesn't help people to have lowered standards. And, you know, it, there's a phenomenon that was written about by Stephen Carter, a, a Yale law professor in the 1990s, who wrote a book called Reflections of an Affirmative Action Baby. And he wrote about his worries, am I the best lawyer for this job or am I the best black lawyer? And some people are self-aware enough about the ubiquity of racial preferences that that is something that gnaws them. On the other hand, gnaws at them. At the other hand, I've spoken to young black students who feel this is completely their due. They understand that they're admitted to colleges and graduate schools and professional schools at mo very, very lowered standards than above all than Asians, but. It doesn't seem to bother them too much. They kind of think that, well, it's owed to me. But, but it can create a sense of self-doubt. And frankly, it should. I mean, I've, I know that on, on, um, as a female, I undoubtedly have been the so-called beneficiary of gender quotas all my life. You know, we want you on a panel because we can't have a mantle. A mantle is the phrase of a, of a panel that is predominantly male. And mantles are totally toxic. Now, nobody would object to a fannel, which is an all-female panel, you know. Um, I've, I've been contacted by a, cons a producer for a conservative cable network that I'm not going to name, but to come and talk about interest rates or something, and, which I know nothing about. And I said, is that because you need a female? And she said, yes. So... It's, it's, a, it's a pernicious uh, game that does nobody any good. So I often maybe rant a little bit about this idea, but there's you know, all these self-help books out. All of them essentially say you need to take responsibility for yourself, even if everything's tough on you, even if it really is someone else's fault. If you don't take full responsibility, you're not going to succeed. I mean, this, is, this thing has been repeated so, so many times, right? But for some reason in this instance, Right. And, and frankly, some of the people that preach this stuff mm -hmm. say that to their kids right. and family and, and you can see it in their lives. But then when it comes to other people, they, they have this very weird double standard Absolutely. that I don't grasp. Absolutely. It is just amazing. I mean, we have had for the last 50 or 60 years 
an excuse conveyor belt or factory that it comes up with one excuse after another for inner city pathologies. Oh, we're not spending enough or yeah, the usual blanket explanation of racism, you know, which is non-falsifiable and is brought in for anything and an absolute refusal to say you are responsible for yourself and the worst in that is fathers, you know, the the norm in the inner city now is out of wedlock child rearing and there's not an expectation that males and, and boys are going to take responsibility for their children. It's the norm that you impregnate females serially, you know, and you go on and you have many different children by, by different females and that's not viewed as a massive breaching of a, of a, of a taboo. Um, and if you never learn responsibility for your children, it's hard to have any sense of responsibility for anything else because that's kind of the primary one. But instead, not only is the community not demanding responsibility, but the outside world is not as well. And um, they've written fathers out of the picture and it's always, oh, we're not spending enough on welfare programs. But, you know, we need, I've been reading a lot about civil rights history and um, I have to say, I mean, it's just to be reminded of how truly abysmal America's treatment of blacks was always gratuitously cruel, gratuitously nasty, humiliating. It, it breaks my heart. Um, but with the passage of the 1965 Voting Rights Act, you could say that that phase of civil rights agitation had reached some kind of logical conclusion you know, it, things were not great, but at that point it would have been great if Booker T. Washington could have been resurrected to say, all right, we've, we've, we've torn down most of the legal barricades. Now is the time to start cultivating our garden and work on personal responsibility, economic autonomy, you know, sh those bourgeois habits of showing up at a job, being on time, respecting your boss, monitoring your kids' homework. And instead, the movement sort of like, including Martin Luther King, said, okay, we've got to find new things to be activists about, whether it's the Vietnam War, the war on poverty. And, and so, whereas other groups, it's been pointed out, have focused on economic advancement, blacks have chosen always sort of the political route. And I, I just think at some point that became not particularly helpful. It would have been much better to focus on cultivating social capital rather than political capital. A couple of quick thoughts, right? I, I always think back to Shelby Steele's work about, you know, the white guilt, you know, playing this yeah. sort of critical role. But the other thing that just struck me recently, I've been thinking a lot about technocracy okay, um, uh, for a whole series of reasons that you might imagine, but it just, it's something that struck me about it is in a spreadsheet, right, if you're someone that's a functionary and you're dealing with a spreadsheet, it does, might not matter to you. You're not thinking about individual people, you're not thinking about their success or failure in particular, you're just thinking that you need to have your spreadsheet read a particular way, right? Um, 
it could be just as easy to bring everyone down to a certain level or bring, you know, it, it, it really doesn't matter what method you use. And it's certainly a lot easier to equalize things across the bottom than it is to, to lift everybody up, right. right? So I'm just wondering if you've ever thought about this, that this the, the idea of this sort of burgeoning bureaucracy and spreadsheets and how much this may be playing a role, like kind of a terrible role in society. I, I don't know. Uh, well, I think whatever your metaphor is, it's definitely what's going on. We have decided that we would rather not cultivate our top math talent if that produces racial disparities. So at this point, uh, the gifted and talented programs are way disproportionately Asian. And they're being dismantled. California has this insane math curriculum that's all about equity. It's, it's all about avoiding disparate impact and hoping that we can narrow those achievement gaps between blacks and Hispanics on the one hand and whites and Asians on the other. So we're going to defer the teaching of algebra in the hope that if we defer it, blacks and, and Hispanics will have caught up by then. But then you have less time for the other subsequent math courses across the country. Algebra and calculus is being replaced by this new phony math course called data science, which is basically just reading graphs. You know, it's, oh, well, they don't really need math, but they need to do data science because that's what their class, their work is going to be built around. But it's completely watered down. It's really just reading an x and y axis graph. Um, it's certainly not regression analysis or serious statistics. Um, so absolutely, this country, because of its understandable white guilt, has decided it would rather lower everybody to the low level than raise it up. And China, for all its problems, and you know, we shouldn't romanticize it because obviously its COVID policies were beyond insane. But still, they are finding their top math talent and showing everything, throwing everything they've got at it to make sure that those gifted and talented students, and there are differences in math ability. Sorry, this is not merely some sort of cultural construct. Some people are better at math than others. Get over it. And China finds those students and puts them in highly accelerated, resource-rich environments to make sure that those are the nanotechnologists and physicists of the future that will destroy America's military advantage. Well, I'll just mention they learned that from the US, actually, to do that in the first place, as far as I know. So it's just that we've forgotten Well, those were the here. olden days here. Yeah. yeah, we haven't been doing that for a while. Yeah. Um, so actually, I, I do want to talk about the this sort of war on merit, which is the topic of your new book. I think it's coming out in April. I'm very excited to read that. Um, before we go there, I want to go back to policing yeah. for a moment. Where do things stand in your mind? Should we believe something different now, given every what we saw with this Tennessee? You said maybe this is this is this might just be an unusual case, but do you think this changes the equation around how we should be thinking about police and what? kind of training police need to have and what they need to be doing, how they need to be deployed? Well, I think 
Policing may enter a death spiral if racism remains the predominant explanation for the Tyree Nichols case. It means it will take all the wrong solutions to what I is just, as far as I'm concerned, clearly the wrong explanation. It wasn't an issue of racism. Um, one of the fundamental problems that drove this is the recruiting and retention crisis, which preceded the George Floyd race riots, but got really bad after it, where since Michael Brown in 2014, in the first iteration of the Black Lives Matter movement, you had this growing narrative that to be a cop is to be a racist, and so officers started depolicing, and they also started leaving the profession or not joining the profession. And so staffing levels got low in, in police departments, and they started lowering their standards. And they also, thanks to long-standing civil rights pressures, there's a parallel drive to lower standards for the sake of diversity. And that's been going on for decades, where police departments come under these federal consent decrees. Oh, you don't have enough black officers. Well, it's because the entrance exam has a disparate impact on blacks, meaning they're not passing at a sufficient rate. You know, these are very basic reading tests, but blacks are not, their reading skills are so low that it, the exam disqualifies blacks at a higher rate than whites. So we throw out the test. Um, and we lower the standards for criminal, clean criminal background. Those, that lowering of standards has led inevitably to corruption and abuse scandals. And if racism remains the predominant takeaway from Tyree Nichols, it's going to drive more people out of the profession. The situation on the streets is going to get worse. There'll be fewer cops. They'll be stressed out more. They won't have backup back when they're making a car stop. They won't have supervisors, uh, and it's going to enter a vicious cycle. There won't be sufficient training. It could get very bad. As far as, again, to get to the point of, should we think that the Tyree Nichols incident is going on more frequently than many of us would have acknowledged? Absent more evidence of that, I'm not willing to believe it. I think that. Yes, we need more training. Officers are desperate for more tactical training. They want realistic scenario-based, you know, the New York Police Department has the money to create a whole village. And you put rookie cops or cops in the academy through, you know, these, it's a streetscape. And they, they learn how to take cover behind a building or an alleyway or a car. And they need practice and practice and practice. Even and I suppose this de-escalation would be quite important. That too. Stress control, learning how to talk suspects down. They need that training. Once they're on the job, you know, the so-called in-service training, which is, you know, once you, you, it's like continuing ed if you're a lawyer or something. It takes officers off the job if they're already short-staffed. Do you want to take your staff off for a day or three days of training? So all these things get very hard. But the fundamental driver is the, the loss of manpower because of this phony narrative about ubiquitous cop racism because nobody wants to be a cop anymore. And the situation on the streets, the more you tell inner city people that the cops are racist, the more they're likely to resist arrest. They don't respect the legitimacy of the profession. And the more that people resist arrest, that is, as I say, what almost inevitably, not in this case, 
unless, again, we still don't know what happened before the cameras began. The officers say that he was resisting and grabbed, tried to grab an officer's gun. We don't know that. If that happened, that changes things a lot. It still doesn't justify the tactics, but it changes things a lot. But apart from Nichols, the narrative that policing is racist will lead to more resistance, for sure, and that's going to lead to more officer use of force. Well, and it, it's already led to, I think, what you dubbed with the Ferguson effect, right, right? which is basically this sort of reduction in proactive right. policing, which obviously will create crime kind of as a truism almost, right? right? Truism to us, but not to the left. They don't believe there's any connection between policing and crime. Defunding was sort of overdone as a, as a conservative talking point because few people were actually talking about literal funding cuts, but there was this idea that we should de-police in car stops, in you know turnstile jumping, theft, all of that. Um, because of disparate impact, and that does send a message to criminals that you can get away with whatever. So you've kind of painted a picture of, on the sort of on this training side, what would be helpful um, or what is needed just in general, I suppose, right? Um, and I guess the other, somehow it's going to be difficult, right, if we understand that this idea that racism is the cause of, frankly, everything, right? It's kind of baked into the, the ideological viewpoint, as I've learned over the last few years trying to understand all this. Um, it's like people are asking the question, how is this racist, and coming up with the kind of correct response. How do we shift that? Have you, I'm sure you've been thinking about this. I would point out that I would challenge the left to come up with a single institution today that is not giving preferential treatment to blacks, that is not rewarding managers for hiring and promoting blacks. Uh, there simply is not discrimination going on. I don't know of a single black student that is checking the white box in his college application form because he thinks there's white privilege. I have read about white students who are trying to pass as black or as Native American uh, because to be white now is to be a pariah and to be the bottom of the pecking order as far as being chosen for jobs or promotions or to be admitted to schools or, or given faculty positions. Um, so my contrary explanation is if we're honest about the academic skills gap, 66% of black 12th graders, for instance, don't even have partial mastery of 12th grade math. Partial mastery of 12th grade math skills means being able to do base, basic arithmetic or to read a linear function on a graph. 66% of black 12th graders don't even have partial mastery of that. How then do we reach the conclusion that if Google doesn't have 13% black engineers, Google must be discriminating against competitively qualified black applicants. It's, it's mathematically impossible. You can either have meritocracy or you can have diversity. You can't have both. And 
given those academic skills gaps, it is way, way premature and uncalled for to go around noting the racial ratios of any institution and saying, if it is not proportionally represent, representative, our default explanation is racism. As long as racism remains the only allowable explanation for racial disparities, the left wins. And that's what this, my next book is about, When Race Trumps Merit, is to provide the alternative explanation, to provide the data on the academic skills gaps, on the, on the crime gaps, that are a far more robust explanation of ongoing racial disparities than some kind of phlogiston miasma theory of ubiquitous white supremacy. Well, and I actually think that, you know, when we can go back to some semblance of meritocracy, we will also find and, and be serious about that, about fostering that everywhere. We'll go back to some kind of diversity as well, actually across a whole bunch of different factors, I suppose. Well, you know, it's hilarious. The, the federal science agencies are now committed to the theory that science is racist. Uh, I mean, it's extraordinary. Science is racist, it increases inequities. Um, and we need to increase diversity in the STEM fields. Well, 45% of PhD students in engineering and math in this country are non-US citizens. They're overwhelmingly Asian and Indian, but they don't count as diverse, according to the National Institutes of Health or the National Science Foundation or the White House Office of Science and Technology Policy. So it's an extraordinarily limited idea of diversity. I mean, the conservatives like to say, well, what about intellectual diversity, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, I've heard that argument. Well, even like just defining diversity on the basis of race and ethnicity, it's, it's like making invisible or silencing the voices of, of Asians. Well, Heather, I'm very, very excited to be reading um, When Race Trumps Merit Thank sometime you. in the near future. Available in, for pre-order now. In a, I guess in April is when it comes it out. It comes out in April, but you can go to Amazon and order it now. Wonderful. Any final thoughts? Well, I hope um, that people continue telling the truth, and Epic Times is a, is a good source of that. And you just have to not be frightened to be called a racist by speaking up for colorblind standards and for high expectations for all. More people have to defend the institutions of Western civilization because if they don't, again, it is all coming down. <laughs> Strong words. Uh, Heather McDonald, it's such a pleasure to have you on again. Thank you, Jan. Thank you all for joining Heather McDonald and me on this episode of American Thought Leaders. I'm your host, Yanya Kelly. <music>